Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Nathan Oblack. Welcome back to the podcast for cultural reformation. I'm Nathan Oblack, and I'm joined as usual by Ryan Aris and Dr. Joe Boot. And we are as surprised as you are that a podcast such as this can still be broadcast from Canada. But here we are. Imagine that. (laughs) Deep in the bowels of a nondescript building. (laughs) (laughs) That we identify each and every week. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And here we are at the Ezra Institute in the Knox Cellar. And uh, as an institute, we continue to look forward to our Church and Culture Pastors Colloquium coming quickly. Uh, from November 15th to the 19th, and that is our week-long training program. And it's not only for pastors, but it's for anyone involved in in church leadership. So we still have some spots available, and as we've been mentioning each week, if you sign up for the colloquium, uh, you also get to attend uh, the conference, uh, the Niagara Declaration Conference, on the 15th. When we say it's a week-long, Nathan, uh, it's um, just so that uh, people are aware. It is actually a Tuesday through a Friday, right? So it's really four days because yes, the conference right. is on the and Monday. Monday uh, yeah. yeah, that's right. 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 Yeah. That's right. Yes. And uh, this year, uh, we're tackling uh, really all the topics that many of us are are talking about right now in our churches. But we'll be discussing the relationship of church and state and family, uh, recovering a Christian mind, marriage, gender, and sexuality. And uh, of course, we we hope to discuss these government mandates that will we'll be discussing later on the podcast and the the segregation that uh, is is happening in the church. And uh, here to help us think through those issues at the colloquium will be Joe, Aaron Rock, Tim Stevens, Mike Thiessen, Andre Schutten, P. Andrew Sandlin, Doug Wilson, and James White. So we've got a great list of speakers here to help us work through a lot of these pressing issues. And for our conversation today, Uh, We're going to continue with our conversation on reformational thinking, and last week uh, we cut the conversation a bit short because of time, so we hope to continue with a lot of uh, what we were discussing. And one of those uh, topics was this this apparent contest uh, between theology and philosophy, which one is ultimate. Uh, And of course, you know, when we bring that up as an institute, most people say, well, it's, it's obviously theology. We're Christians. Mm-hmm. There, there shouldn't even be a conversation about this topic. But uh, Ryan, you want to tell us where, where we might uh, begin with our conversation today? Yeah, thanks, Nate. Oh, um, also, I, we forgot to mention that uh, you can also listen to us on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and on their app. That's right. So before we go further, uh, tune in where you've always been tuning in. Find us also on, uh, on the Fight, Laugh, Feast. Awesome. So we... Uh, yeah, Joe, you've uh, you mentioned uh, in in earlier episodes uh, the uh, some of the the dualism that has uh, that has crept into Christian thought and the uh, the work of Thomas Aquinas. And one of, one mm-hmm. of the things that Aquinas is well known for is for his uh, his doctrine or his dictum that uh, Philo- or theology is the queen of the sciences. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that this has done, and I hope you can get into it, is just sort of touched off a debate about, well, is uh, is that true? Is this the way that 
the sciences and uh, sort of paths of inquiry work? Mm-hmm. Is there, you know, is there a, a crown? Is there is there a queen of these different sciences? And if it, if that's the case, is it to, is it necessarily theology? Mm. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about philosophy. It seems like they like they've been set up in a a form of opposition, mm-hmm. uh, and I I just want to explore that uh, that apparent tension. Yeah. Well, it's certainly an um, an important question as we sort of continue to meander through our discussion around reformational thinking and and reformational philosophy. Is that some people will be wondering, well, uh, why? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, what, yeah. Were you know what? Why would we do that? What, why is that so important? I mean, isn't isn't it really? Uh, there may be a few people with a specialist interest in philosophy who'd be concerned with that, but why would uh, the Ezra Institute uh, be focusing on on those sort of uh, philosophical questions when surely theology is the thing we should be dealing with? I don't know, remember whether you it was you who mentioned this um, during a previous episode or whether it was just during some of our. Um, in between uh, setting up Mike's banter, but we we had the, uh, an incident here at the center once where I think you Ryan were asked by a, by by a, by a visitor, um, uh, you know what we were doing here at the Ezra Institute, and you, That's right. you sort of yeah. <laughs> tried to gently explain to the individual about worldview and and, and and a Christian thinking, and then they said, you know, what's that got to do with you? Must be born again. Yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. You know, one can understand um, at the outset why some people would ask themselves, you know, especially in light of statements of the Apostle Paul about not being taken captive to empty philosophy and the elemental principles of this world and not according to Christ. And of course, we would exegete that by saying that Paul was not saying philosophy is bad, don't do it and don't engage philosophers because. He did that very thing in Acts chapter 17 when he went to Mars Hill at the Areopagus and engaged in debate with the Mm -hmm. Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and explained the Christian world and life view to them. Yeah. Um, He he did it well enough too, didn't he? He certainly did. I mean, that would be like me showing up at Oxford or Cambridge and having some of the most prominent members of the faculty get converted on the spot and, you know, become disciples of the Lord. I mean, so it was a tremendously fruitful engagement that he had. Uh, some, of course, scoffed. Some said, we want to hear you again about this, and, and some believed. Now, I'm not suggesting that Paul was engaged in a platonic, um, a Socratic dialogue, Well, although his method was probably fairly Socratic in that mm-hmm. context, actually, um, of um, these open discussions that he was having in the marketplace and then being invited to, to, to debate, really, whether maybe they were actually seeking to decide. It's possible that the, the court was... Uh, the Athenians were just trying to decide in the council there whether he should have a license to to lecture. Um, but he knew their philosophers. He could quote them. He right. could quote the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. He could quote their poets. So Paul was a man who who had read philosophy. He understood it. He knew how to engage with it. And he knew how to engage the Christian worldview with the claims of uh, religion and, and, and the philosophy that was built upon it. He mm said to them as he opened his dialogue or his apology, we might say, his apologetic, mm-hmm. um, his apologia, uh, I see that you are in many ways um, very religious because I was going through your temples and I noticed a, a statue to the unknown God. So 
But there is a sense in which uh, people think, oh, well, Paul backed away from that uh, more intellectual uh, dialogue with the philosophers. And later he said, I decided to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, as though Paul's time in Athens was some kind of unmitigated disaster. And I think nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be a worse interpretation of what took place there than suggesting that uh, Paul then abandons dialogue uh, or debate of this nature um, in favor of some sort of simple gospel. So, but having said that, you can understand why in the uh, contemporary church context, some people would think, well, uh, we don't want to be taken captive by empty philosophy. And that's true. If we're going to do philosophy, it must be according to Christ, Mm. not according to the traditions of men. And of course, that's what we're saying in Reformational philosophy is that we need to strive to do our thinking, our philosophical thinking, our worldview thinking, our apologetic thinking in terms of Christ, according to Christ, Mm -hmm. not in terms of these elemental principles um, of the world. Um, And because there is this uh, suspicion, let's call it, of philosophy, it is sometimes thought, well, non-Christians do philosophy and uh, Christians do theology, because theology, as you've put it, is the queen of the sciences. Mm -hmm. Something sacred. Yes. Now, of course, there is at least a recognition there that... uh, Theology is a science. Uh, the, the, and we talked about this last week, I think, we differentiated between biblical revelation um, and even our attempts at systematizing that revelation into confessions and into theological dogmas and systematic theology and systematic theological systems, which is a, a necessary part of doing theology. But it, but it isn't coterminous with revelation. And so... The point we, uh, we want to make uh, to all those who would try and put uh, a queen on, on a pedestal, well, actually, we already have a king. We don't need a queen. We have King Jesus, mm-hmm. and we have the full revelation of his word. And every field of study and every area of life has access to that word, not just theology. So that queen of the sciences kind of idea, which I confess that in the past I've mistakenly used myself, in this privileging of theology that even that I, that I was caught up in earlier in my apologetics uh, career or vocation, I should say, um, is a hangover from uh, this dualistic view that you that you mentioned, uh, where and we'll maybe come to this a little later in the podcast as well, where uh, what uh, Thomas Aquinas had been charged with doing was interpreting Aristotle mm. for the Church. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that if you have, imagine a double-decker bus or a two-story house, and uh, in the lower story is nature, in the upper story is supernature, the supernatural. So you've got the natural and the supernatural. And in the lower story, you've got uh, philosophy. Uh, You've got um, culture, really. Uh, You've got education. You've got the sciences. In the upper story, you've got the church, and you've got a revelation. And the idea basically was that uh, in, the, in the realm of nature, in this area of philosophy, the lower story could prove there was an upper story by reason yep. and establish certain things about the upper story. But it lacked, it, it couldn't reason you through to the plan of redemption uh, and certain Christian doctrines and to a state of grace. So that's why the church and the preaching of grace was necessary. And um, this was, um, without going into all the details of, Aquinas, we can do that in another episode, perhaps we can talk a bit more about that. 
the, the angelic doctor, as they call him in the Roman church, he really uh, pretty much took Aristotle, made some amendments and adjustments to make it compatible, as he saw it, with Christianity. And then theology, so philosophy remains in the lower story, but then theology, which is the supernatural science, if you will, becomes uh, the queen. And it's now the queen of the sciences. And uh, that seems to me to be a, a fundamental mistake. There is no queen of the sciences. There is a king of all the sciences. His name is Jesus. And then there is his word, which rules over all of them. Uh, over every science and every field of study must take account of and reckon with the word revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in the totality of scripture and within creation. And so we would not be about privileging philosophy or theology or any science. As we pointed out last week, you can have bad theologians. Mm -hmm. You can have non-Christian theologians. Why would we elevate them to being queen over other areas of life? No, the theology is one important discipline. It's one important area of study that we need to work hard in, and it must be surrendered to the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and done in terms of a Christian world and life view, as is the case with philosophy. Now, as we see with Aquinas, uh, the the fact that um, he had... Aristotle being interpreted for the church, a Christian essentially there takes over Aristotelian philosophy, makes some amendments. The issue is that theology is frequently done, in fact, it's always done, in terms of certain philosophical ideas. So certain philosophical categories will inform how we go about our theology. So take one example, um, How we think about heaven and how we think about the soul uh, has been uh, influenced profoundly in the West by Greek philosophy, by uh, the the philosophy of the Greeks. In fact, the language of a a rational soul, of of an immortal soul, an immortal rational soul, is taken over from Greek philosophy. And that's then read in to our theological conception of the human person. Similar uh, in the way we read about heaven. Um, and uh, the, the it's almost in some Christian consciousness a kind of Greek Elysium for disembodied spirits. And again, we can actually begin to build our doctrine of uh, the intermediate state, just as the Roman church did, um, and even of the eschaton in terms of foreign philosophical assumptions that are not that are not actually derived from scripture so theology never escapes philosophy anyway they're bound together and so the notion that theology sits there ruling as a queen over all the rest is not true what i would say about philosophy is that it's really the boundary we might call it the boundary science or the totality science because it's concerned with how all of the different aspects of creation hang together theology is primarily concerned with we talked about the faith aspect or the pistical aspect or the certitudinal aspect, as it's been called. But this aspect of our lives, which concerns the practice of our faith, the interpretation of scripture, the development of creeds and confessions and so forth, that's the focus of, uh, of theology. We love it. We're thankful to the Lord for it. We're so glad uh, for great uh, Bible-believing theologians, but it cannot 
step onto the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ or of his word um, and uh, become a queen. No, it must be subject to scripture and it doesn't. Theology does not rule over the other areas of life. That's part of that two-story view where in the, in the supernatural realm, in that dualistic view, the relation really of theology to various theories in the sciences I was going to leave this to the end, but I'll just mention it briefly now. We can come back to it We can too. circle back around, yeah. Is that the um, the theologian or the churchman has to come down periodically and cuff the odd scientist or philosopher over the year <laughs> for coming up with something that's inconsistent with supernatural revelation. Right. So as long as you don't say anything that's inconsistent with some uh, aspect of revelation as understood by the church, you're okay. Uh, but if you do, you might get cuffed around the ear. That is, that, that's not the, the reformational view, and it invokes an artificial duality that we wouldn't be able to live with. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering, Joe, as you mention all of that, um, the church's kind of disposition to privilege theology as the queen of sciences, I wonder if that is a bit of overcorrection from you know, Enlightenment thinkers coming along and just lopping off the top of the bus and saying, no, you can't use that at all mm-hmm. in, in discourse and thinking. Yeah, there may be an element of that, um, that um, there's a sense that uh, we, need to, we need to preserve uh, sacrosanct, if you will, from the, from the rationalist invasion theology. The problem, though, is that the, the rationalists did invade theology, and in fact, mm. they invaded it early in the 19th century, mid-19th century, uh, and liberal theology was born. And there you had, again, philosophy exercising its influence over theology right. in the development of liberal uh, uh, theology. So um, there is a certain amount of protectionism involved, for sure. We think well, we've, got to, we've got to preserve uh, theology from, from, from the nasty world. But actually, no, the best place to take theology is where it belongs, uh, right into the academy, doing solid biblical scriptural theology. If that had been done at places like Oxford and Cambridge for training ministers in the Anglican Church in the 19th century, Charles Darwin would probably never have become the eventually the atheist that he did mm-hmm. because he was training as a minister and was, you know, in the grip of rational theology and deism and not biblical theology. Uh, so um, I think uh, uh, this, is, um, this has been a long-standing problem. And as you say, in some respects, many of the motives have been good, uh, it's not that these people have set out to, in a certain sense, um, uh, undermine the teaching of Scripture, um, but in the attempt to sort of have these as non-overlapping magisterium, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. uh, that you know, to, to somehow shield and protect revelation, um, we, we haven't really accomplished that. Uh, in fact, we ended up liberal theology ended up really just surrendering revelation. So. It, it really does come back to, are we rooted in a robust scriptural world and life view? Is, is the word of God our touchstone? Um, and um, not even any theological system per se. Joe, you mentioned a minute ago that uh, uh, philosophy, sorry, not theology, philosophy is, I think you said a boundary science, mm. or a boundary aspect. Is, is that not to put it in some kind of privileged position, or can you just say more about what uh, mm. what that means? Sure. You had uh, you had spoken our last episode about each of these different uh, 
aspects of reality, uh, philosophy included, as kind of like beads on a string or pearls on a necklace. Mm -hmm. Are you saying that philosophy is sort of like the center, like the slightly larger bead or what's the... uh... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no. Uh, So, but that's a good question. Um, Because philosophy is, let's call it a totality science, um, because it's looking... It, its field of study is the relationship of all the various aspects rather than f- focusing in on on a, a single one. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't occupy a privileged position, but it occupies a very interesting position uh, in terms of um, being so evidently and so directly shaped and informed very obviously by re- by religious assumptions. Huh. Um, and uh, the... <clears throat> What we talked about, I think, last week, we touched on the faith aspect being like having a boundary function. Mm. Um, and all that uh, essentially means is it's the, it's the aspect of our lives that really opens itself up and out towards God and has mm. the effect of really informing uh, all the other aspects of our lives. So I would say in some respect, yes, philosophy, um, because it is looking at how all of these aspects hang together, is you can't escape the very on-the-surface religious assumptions in the sense that you could look at mathematics, and unless somebody has got a bit of a background in looking at um, the ph- the philosophy behind math, uh, and you know has some sense of rationalistic and intuitionist schools and so on, and and you know the idea of incompleteness in mathematical theorem, it's not obvious how that mathematics is religious, is it? I mean, it looks like well, you know, four plus four is eight. For, you know, how can it be any other way? Uh, that's not religious. Um, well, actually, Van Til showed, you know, do numbers and the, the laws that govern numbers get you closer to God or further away from him? You know, that's going to that's gonna depend on your underlying philosophy. Now, so, th- so the questions that philosophy is asking um, about how everything hangs together uh, so obviously involves these divinity beliefs that, uh, that it plays this rather unique role so uh no it's not more important it's not more significant it doesn't have a senior role to any uh, other discipline in in the same way that faith doesn't have a senior is not the senior aspect over the cultural aspect Mm. but it has a particular uh, function in our lives uh, even when we've not thought about it that much Mm. i was just going to mention it should be obvious your theory about biology will not inform your philosophy but it's the other way around. Right. Well, we gonna... use the word behind as sure. well. It's behind your mathematical. It, yeah, it goes before. Thinking. Yes, exactly. So yeah, that's probably yeah. a good moment to talk a little bit about um, uh, religious belief because we didn't uh, really define that that's right. in the last podcast because we were wrestling with one or two other things. And so I think maybe we can spend the, the, the last few minutes talking a bit about that. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got about 15 minutes or so, I think, haven't we? Actually, we've got quite a bit of time, maybe 20 minutes. Um, so don't worry, pe- there yeah. will be lots. <laughs> People thought we they were nearly through this. <laughs> so wait, let, let's just, let's go back because you both mentioned it. Let's go back to our illustration of uh, the necklace because I think it's a really helpful one. Uh, Van Til uses this. Uh, um, Roy Clauser has used this uh, to, to sort of illustrate um, some of these issues. Uh, a necklace is, you know, you, uh, a beaded necklace. Imagine a pearl necklace with various beads, and there's a string that that goes through them that holds them all together. And uh, we mentioned last week that that philosophy was kind of asking, well, non-Christian philosophy is really the search for 
uh, which of the beads is also the string or which combination of beads is also the string. And that the Christian answer we saw is none of them. Uh, the creation cannot be reduced uh, to one of its created aspects. And this is the fundamental distinction between Christian worldview and non-Christian worldview is the creator-creature distinction, the idea of transcendence. So um, when we talk about religion with, the, with our neighbors or friends or you know your colleague down at the cafe or at the uh, at the staff room at school or wherever you are um it's religion has been historically challenging to define um because most people think about it in the west still in a very limited sense and so they're not thinking about it in the way that we frequently talk about it so uh, for example um people will often associate the word religion with uh formalized um, the formalized liturgical practice of some faith or another, the rites and um, practices of a particular organized religion. Um, and uh, that's what they typically mean by it at the popular level. But actually all um, religious beliefs, we're saying, regard something as the self-existent reality that generates everything else. I'll say that again, all religious beliefs regard something as the self-existent reality that generates everything else. That reality on which everything else depends. That's a religious belief. Is that, is that another way to say a God concept? Yes, or a divinity a divine concept. divine per se? Yeah, so let, let's dig into that a little bit more. So uh, the history of the word religion, probably religio, relegere in the Latin, to tie, to bind. Uh, it's about getting things growing in the same direction, um, which is interesting in and of itself. But when we're talking about it in the philosophical sense now of religious belief, what we mean is a belief in something as divine, Ryan, as you've said. It depends on nothing else for its existence. So I don't know whether we mentioned, because my head's like a sieve right now, the Pythagoreans last week and their idea that all of reality depended on numbers on the numerical aspect. There was a, a, a number world theory. Uh, and in fact, they even sang hymns to the number 10 and so on. I've read, read some of their uh, interesting hymnody to numbers. Huh. So the, the idea of the divine is a belief in something that is self-existent and depends on nothing else for its existence. That's the first thing. Second thing, a religious belief, a belief is actually religious when uh, it just talks about how the non-divine depends on the divine. So it's not just that you've got a divinity concept. But then you talk about how that which isn't divine is dependent on the divine, on that which is divine, self-existent. And then thirdly, which is the bit that uh, most people associate religion, belief about how humans can have proper relationship to the divine. So those would be the three things that characterize um, uh, religious belief. And as you look at it in those terms, you begin to realize that it isn't just organized religion formal rites and liturgies and practices that qualify for believing in something uh, self-existent on which everything else depends, uh, that, that structures uh, has a structure around how that which isn't divine, which isn't self-existent, is dependent on that which is divine, and how you might align your existence with that concept of divinity. Mm. Um, now, obviously, for us as Christians in, in biblical faith, the self-existent divine is the triune God of Scripture. 
the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the dependency idea, our dependence on the divine, has to do with God's law word for creation. We've talked about that already uh, in, pr in previous programs, that you have the, the law word of God. In a sense, there's two sides uh, to that. There's God's law for creation, and there's the lawful response of creation to that word. So that's the dependence of all created reality on the divine. And then, of course, proper relationship to the divine is about the covenantal relationship that God has established with his people from the time that he uh, uh, clothed our first parents in animal skins and performed the first animal sacrifice through to the covenant with uh, Abraham, and then with Noah, and then, of course, on through the covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ, which we celebrate around the communion table. This is about how we stand in right relationship to the divine. Mm. So we can talk there about, as we often do, creation, fall, redemption, consummation in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there you have then what we're doing then is organizing or systematizing uh, that religious perspective uh, on reality. But um, that's the Christian faith, but you don't have to have services and liturgies and confessions to to qualify then as a religious belief. Just think about um, mm. uh, Buddhism or Brahmin, uh, uh, Theravada Buddhism and, and uh, Brahmin Hinduism, for example, even Shintoism as well. There is no worship in those religions. They're recognized no, as no world liturgy. No, no liturgy. Uh, no formal. Uh, no, there's no congregational yeah. gathering. There's right, no. Right. There's not even prayer. I mean, in the sense of in Hinduism anyway, and Buddhism, um, beingness or non-being is ultimate. So there's meditation, mm -hmm. but there isn't prayer to the infinite personal. So the notion that religion is about liturgies, rites, the practice of this or that particular faith that is present in popular culture in Canada and much of the West. That's, a, that's, a, that's the myth of secularism. That's, that's, a, that's a myth that's there to say some people are religious, mm -hmm. other people are not. What this does, though, what the true nature of religion shows is that there is no such thing as a non-religious person. Mm. Uh, we are homo respondents. We are those who respond to God religiously one way or the other, to, to his word revelation. So it's not about belief in a supreme being even, because the Buddhists don't believe in a supreme being. Hinduism doesn't believe ultimately in a supreme being. It believes in non-being or uh, the nothingness or beingness. Uh, and, and that's actually where Greek philosophy ended up in Plotinus as well. So it's not, um, fundamentally, it's not about this or that world faith. And actually, that's not just the view of reformational philosophy. People like Paul Tillich, uh, Maseya Eliade, the, the famous um, uh, scholar of um, comparative Carl religion. Carl Jung, uh, collaborator, wasn't it? Carl Jung was another. Um, C.S. Lewis. Mm. These people all uh, recognized that the, the basic nature of religion was belief in a divine per se. Right? It's something that is self-existent on which everything else depends. Well, in last season, we talked quite a bit about inescapable concepts. This would just be yeah. another one, wouldn't it? Exactly. Exactly that. You can't get away from it. You can't say you're not religious. Uh, you can't. And this is why, I mean, you know, as we now think about 
people understanding why we say the things we do about the state or about education mm. or about the arts. It comes back to this. You can't have a neutral political party. You cannot have a neutral state. You cannot have a neutral curriculum. You cannot have a neutral school because it's an inescapable concept. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the religious foundation is basic to human experience. It is fundamental to it. And therefore, our faith response in the faith aspect of experience is also inescapable. There is nobody, there are no non-believers. There are unbelievers in Christianity, right. but there are no non-believers. So when we sort of week by week wrestle with this piece of news and that, that issue that's going on or this question we want to deal with and, we, and people are thinking, how do they come to this? Uh, this is how. This, this is how. It's the inescapably religious character of all human experience and existence. Um, that's important when it comes to the discussion about theories and mm. because people might ask themselves, okay, well, I can accept that... Uh, you know, belief in something that's um, non-dependently real, on which everything else depends, that's self-existent, um, and uh, that we begin to seek to interpret and understand reality in terms of the dependence of that which is not divine on that which is given the position of divine. And of course, the Bible deals with that. In the reason the Bible never talks about atheism mm. <laughs> or agnosticism is because it only deals with true belief and idolatry, uh, true religion, and false religion. That's it. That's why we can't possibly advance polytheism for the state or for education or for any area of life as pleasing to God. Mm. Um, but the question that would then be asked is, well, yeah, but okay, that's good. But how would that really impact, you know, theories in science, in mathematics, in biology, in psychology, in history and everything else? Um, and of course, in some of those aspects, you can see some of those disciplines you can see more obviously how it would impact impact them. I mean, think about political philosophy or historiography. The, you know, the, the, our philosophy of history. You know, the way Karl Marx thought about it. You can you can see numerous uh, implications immediately. Uh, but there have been basically three primary ways, other than ours, uh, three primary ways in which people have seen the relationship of religion to theory. And it might help for me just to very, very quickly state these before we discuss them a bit more. Mm -hmm. The first one has been um, that, that, that the way um, religion relates to uh, theory is that reason invents religion. So that's, the, that's been the sort of rationalistic Western idea is that religion is really a divinity belief is some kind of a hypothesis of reason. Reason is neutral. Of course, as we've shown many times before on this program, uh, belief in reason is just that. It itself is a religious postulate. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's the choosing of a position for the origin. Uh, it's the, it's the lifting out of of one aspect of our experience, this analytical, logical aspect, and trying to account for all the other beads and the string itself mm -hmm. in terms of uh, human reasoning. And so that fails. But nonetheless, one of the ways that that question's been answered: How does religion relate to theory? As well reason invents religions which are really just hypotheses the second way in which it's happened is that uh, people have said well reason um uh, and th theory these are not about belief they have nothing to say to religion these are non-overlapping magisterium i mentioned that earlier um this is a kind of uh, we might even say this led to the sort of kierkegaard's existential leap right which is 
uh, you've got theory, you've got science over there, and then there's religion, and it's a blind leap in the dark. Mm. You just have to make an existential leap uh, because they have nothing to do with one another. So in the first instance, religion is a hypothesis of reason. It's it's just it, reason defines it. In the second instance there, uh, the there's no real overlap at all. They're just separate uh, domains. They shouldn't touch one another. Then we've touched on this in detail already in this session, the dual view mm -hmm. with the nature and supernature. So you have religion relates to theory and science in terms of sometimes coming, walking down the stairs from the upper story of the supernatural to cuff the scientist around the ear uh, for uh, their contradiction of, of a specific uh, uh, re revealed truth, um, which... Well, in the case of the Catholic Church, was often dependent upon a Ptolemaic understanding of the universe, right? When uh, um, Galileo ran into problems, mm -hmm. um, not actually on the on scriptural revelation. That's another issue. Uh, but that sort of playing a sort of umpire to make sure the sciences a theory doesn't contradict some aspect of revelation. So those are the three main ways that people have thought about a relationship between religion and theory, reason, and science. Um, but reformational thought, thinking Christianly, breaks radically with that. It breaks radically with that. And here's how that happens. For us as Christians, and actually most Christians will recognize this when they think, sit down and think clearly scripturally. How do you and I encounter the reality of God? How is it that you and I really came to know that Jesus Christ is Lord? Was it because somebody walked down from the upper story and cuffed a scientific theory around the year? Mm. Uh, was it because um, our reasoning and our thinking in, in various disciplines had nothing to do with uh, some sort of existential faith, a sort of blind leap? Was it because we sat down with our reason and we thought that God is the hypothesis to the best explanation for the universe? Mm. Um, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I don't think any real Christian would resonate with that. No, we encounter God in his word, which Van Til frequently talked about as self-attesting, right? It's, right? it's not reason that's self-attesting. It's the word of God that's self-attesting in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we encountered him in his word. We encountered him in our encounter with creation itself. So as beings made in God's image, and living in the world, the witness of creation itself and the word of God, the, the instantiation of the word of God all around us, uh, obeying his command, so both the scriptures and creation, and of course the Holy Spirit who sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts and assures us that we are children of God. He takes what is Christ's, he made it known to us, uh, to give us that deep sense of assurance and knowledge that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we belong to God. And of course, in relationships, fourthly, with each other in the life of the church, that in our fellowship one with another, we know and encounter the reality of who God is. And so uh, in those areas of our lives, we come to know that we know that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. We didn't prove it by nature, by some aristotelian reason and logic uh and build up sort of one block upon another to show well yeah jesus is the best explanation best hypothesis for the explaining the world you might but somebody might believe that cognitively or rationally but never become a christian 
never come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in fact, the scripture says the devils believe and tremble. So they know what's true about the world, but, they, but they're not uh, transformed. They're not turned toward God. And so um, this is why a presuppositional direction in apologetics, which you've highlighted before, Nathan, in fact, you, you raised this last week mm -hmm. about the relationship to presuppositional apologetics, is why we don't say in our method of the reason that out of a reformational thought comes a presuppositional mm -hmm. apologetic, a transcendental apologetic, is that we don't prove God. The challenge we make to the, to the uh, non-believing world is this is God's creation. God has revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. His word is self-attesting. You try and make sense of reality without him. Right. Yeah, that's right. Because actually without the creator, who is the, who, who the Lord Jesus Christ and whom all things consist, who is the string, who is the string of the necklace, who is the one who holds all things together. We can't reduce it to any aspect of creation. Uh, it's because of him reality is what it is and without him it's unintelligible without him it all falls to pieces none of it makes sense um and we destroy meaning that that's the direction you know we and so you know we we uh, as uh, nancy piercy did so well in her book um is it total truth or the finding truth maybe i can't remember which one where she does the remember. apologetic but i can't uh, remember which one uh, I should have had that in front of me, but where you go through a process is, is, is the, the key in apologetics is to identify the idol, which bit of reality is being, uh, which aspect of reality is being abstracted and made into the string and thereby destroying mm. a meaning uh, in creation. So that's why we begin there uh, and, we, and we, we depend upon the word of God and we have an unashamedly Christian a starting point. So those are the three the, the three ways that the that uh, typically relationship between reason and revelation is looked at. Real Christianity breaks with that. I've just described how, but how do you have a philosophy and an apologetic consistent with that? And that's what was lacking. I would argue into a reformational thinking uh, with Kuiper and then with Doyeverd and Van Til and others began to to really land this is that. It's the, the real relationship is that religion determines how reason makes theories. Religion mm -hmm. is what's determining the sciences. Um, it's determining these theories because they replace the living God with another divinity concept, with something that's self-existent on which everything else depends. And then they go about trying to explain that dependency. So whether it's materialism or rationalism, or ex romanticism or existentialism as an effort to then start accounting for everything in terms of that aspect. And so reason, Doivert says, doesn't invent religion. Religion determines reasoning. And this is, this is the thing that we sometimes struggle to get home even to churchmen, right? Mm -hmm. To pastors, to, 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 to leaders, to, 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 to people who profess the Christian faith too. It's, it is not science, this neutral right. edifice of science that's now going to speak from uh, ex cathedra from the science <laughs> table of Doug Ford, right? There is no neutral science. Yep. Uh, there is no neutral politics. It's all shaped and informed by religious worldview. Mm -hmm. And it's that worldview which determines theories. And theories will then necessarily share the nature of their divinity belief. That's the point is that when people then develop theories in any discipline, their theory will share 
the nature of the divinity belief that they hold. Materialism will come up with a materialist explanation for everything. It won't allow for anything else. It won't allow a divine foot in the door, as they mm. often say. Yep. It must have a material explanation for every phenomenon. Rationalism. It, if my net can't catch it, it isn't fish. Unless my reasoning has determined and established something or accepted something, it can't possibly be true. Mm. Um, the uh, uh, romanticism, uh, this sort of sense of it's all about feeling. It's all about how my uh, aesthetic experience of reality. Um, voluntarism, it's all about my will. Wh whichever of these systems or schools you look at, uh, they all are building a view of reality consistent with their divinity belief. Um, so, for example, um, for, our, the, the, for our listeners, Darwinism, neo-Darwinism, has become essentially uh, an atheistic creation account. Let's not go. Let's not deal today with so-called theistic evolution, mm. but um, it's become an atheistic uh, creation account for reality, and it's materialistic. Darwinism needs to be. This is why uh, Karl Marx welcomed it with such enthusiasm. It must be. It, it must pay a obeisance. It must bow to its divinity belief. It must account for reality in terms of chance mutation. It cannot be directed. It cannot be something which had an end, a goal in mind. Um, what about beliefs in psychology, like uh, behaviorism? Human beings are really just animals. They respond to particular stimuli. Uh, they they are not. Um, uh, beings made in God's image uh, with a, 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 a degree of complexity of the inner and the outer man with functioning in a multiplicity of aspects. No, they must be reduced to the sensitive, the biotic and the physical aspects. Uh, we can't have a, a view of man that would let God and transcendence in the door. Um, existentialism in philosophy. Uh, man is nothing but a the burden of choice confronted with the absurdity of life, of reality. Life is fundamentally absurd. Uh, there can't be any meaning in it. The only meaning that you can have in it is one that you will invent and develop for yourself, and that's the infinite tragic burden of responsibility as you confront the absurd. Um, you can see how all of these ideas, all of these theories, philosophy, psychology, biology, we could go on and on. And that could be the exercise of like 20 weeks. We could pick, mm. a, we could pick a, a discipline, a, 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 a philosophy or a, or a theory a week. Right. Um, look at atomic theory, look at theories in mathematics and see how they must each be consistent with their divinity mm. uh, belief. And so this is how this works out into all of the different subject areas and into every aspect of life. Religion is determining reason, it's determining science, it's determining the disciplines. Um, and it, as theories are built, they are built almost always consistently with their most fundamental divinity belief. Mm -hmm. And of course, thinking this way would naturally make you much more critical when you're analyzing a country's response to a virus, for example. Well, yes. <laughs> Just throw that one up there. <laughs> yeah, well, of course. Um, you know, when you look at the uh, when you look at the various responses, you can actually see how 
in a, in various areas in the area of you know biosecurity uh, when you look at um, the whole idea of lockdowns you mm -hmm. know mandates and so forth mm -hmm. um, the biosecurity worldview um, you can see how it is fundamentally religious and worldview assumptions that are informing the response and uh, let's give a couple of examples of that um, we've obviously in in analyzing the threat to health let's say uh, we have lifted out the biotic aspect the, the, uh, and human biology. And we've said uh, the key to human health, or at least some have said, is the, the, um, the, the expert in the virus, the, the, the epidemiologist, the virologist. Mm -hmm. The key to human health is avoiding contact with viral material. Well, now, of course, we've just heard from uh, the UK, from the the, the, uh, the the head of medical security there, health security or something or other, uh, that, um, that that COVID is now probably not the biggest threat to health this year because people have been locked up and, 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 uh, and, and separated from one another. Their immune systems are weakened, she's saying, and therefore we're expecting, uh, they're predicting the worst flu season in possibly 50 years. Um, in that that's been admitted in the United Kingdom, um, that some have estimated the possibility of sixty thousand deaths from influenza because people's immune systems are weakened because there's this been this obsessive focus on I've got to avoid contact with this virus because human health is about the avoidance of viral material. As it happens, it's not mm. actually. It's really important that you do have contact with viral material. That's one, but. We've been talking about the fact that we've overlooked the social aspect, the faith aspect, mm -hmm. the economic aspect, all these other, the rich diversity of life that is central to what it means to be human, what it means to have health, what it means to be under the Lord Jesus Christ and dependent on him. Not one of these beads becoming the string, but yep. being dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen this obsession uh, with the biotic. That's one area. The other area we've seen the obsession with is the cultural aspect which concerns formative power. The, the, the historical cultural aspect concerns how we form and shape uh, culture. And um, this, the, 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 the formative aspect culturally, and something that G.K. Chesterton pointed out, is he said that the strongest thing in the world that, that, that people have made, what is it? It's the state. Mm -hmm. It's not the Empire State Building. It's the state. The state is the strongest thing in the world. And he very insightfully said... When we do not um, uh, worship God and serve God, we will worship the world. Mm. And above all, we will worship the strongest thing in the world. And so what's happened is people have looked for security and safety in the, in the informative power. Where, where is the power to save us? Where is the power to deliver us? Where is the power to make sure that all shall be well in the economy and in our lives and in everything else? People have looked to the state. Mm -hmm. And so you have this abstracting, this lifting out of the historical cultural in particular manifest in the state. And we've seen basically state worship on display, idolatry on display with regard to the state. And I would say, and this may be uh, more, slightly more esoteric for people to think about, I'm writing an article on this right now. I also think that we've seen the aesthetic aspect of human experience. Uh, that's the idea of harmony, uh, a beautiful harmony, um, uh, play a very significant role in the response to the current crisis. I would say that the, that the by aesthetic experience, I mean this, this experience of sense of beauty, of harmony, almost a religious experience. Mm. Uh, that one of the reasons why 
arguments and evidences and uh, counterfactuals and, and, and all the damage that's been done by these mandates and, and even the destruction in the life of the church that just hasn't penetrated for the most part, doesn't seem to have impacted people's thinking, mm-hmm. is because they're in the mitt, they're in the grip of an aesthetic religious experience, a COVID religious experience of what? Of harmony. We're all in this together, of unity, right? Of a counterfeit unity, really. Uh, that we are somehow in this uh, this almost cosmic struggle against this invisible enemy and we're all in it together and uh, we're all going to come through it together and we're going to defeat it again. We've got this wonderful sense of unity around it. And it's like people being in the grip of a beautiful sunset saying, oh, wow. And then you saying, well, last, year, last week's sunset was much nicer than that one. And then becoming upset <laughs> with you uh, because you're making some sort of factual observation and interrupting their aesthetic experience, this almost religious experience of of harmony. Mm. And for a lot of, especially non-believers, uh, I should say unbelievers, not non-believers, uh, who are almost having this religious experience with COVID that they haven't had before of the unity of humanity in yep. facing a common foe uh, and sh- seemingly sharing in this struggle together uh, which of course in and of itself is a legitimate experience just to experience unity with other people. But this is around a, uh, a, a counterfeit notion of unity that you can be, you can have a true uh, sense of religious unity around a statist effort to stamp out a virus. Mm-hmm. And so I would say in the, in the response culturally, mm-hmm. we've seen a variety of absolutizations happening of these various aspects. Mm-hmm. Well, and here we are at the end of uh, this week's podcast, and I feel like we're just getting started. So I think we'll pause it here. Yeah, I and, wanted to carry on with that. Yeah, we'll, we'll carry on with this conversation next week for sure. But uh, thank you again uh, for listening to the podcast for Cultural Reformation. And as we sign off, we remind you that for from him and through him and to him are all things to God be the glory. It's passed down as a prophecy. Every year about this time